From the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast, this is the Parsha Pathways Podcast. Dive in to the weekly Torah portion led by rabbis local to Florida's Gulf Coast, Pinellas Pasco, and Hernando Counties. Participate live every Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org slash Parsha to learn more. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Um, this uh, Shabbat is Shabbat Zachor, and it's one of the four special parshiot that we have leading up to Pesach. This one has to occur right before uh, Purim because it gets us ready in, in the mindset for uh, the story of Purim and uh, in the context of uh, remembering the existential threats that the Jewish people have faced throughout the centuries. So what are we supposed to remember? Well, we're gonna take a look at that in just a second and I'll share my screen. I'd like to go over the text that we use for, uh, for this parsha, for this uh, special Shabbat, Shabbat Zahor. And, um, and then, just a little piece of the Haftorah that we use also, and also the section that we take for Purim Day itself, which is also a recollection of the story of, of Amalek and what he did to the Israelites as they went out. So um, I should say at the outset that uh, there are a lot of um, like, parallels, I, can, I guess you could say, with uh, what's going on in the world now. And, uh, you know, we uh, always try to bring some kind of lessons from our Torah and uh, from the Tanakh in general to uh, try to give us a Jewish perspective on, on things that are happening in our world. And it's really uh, kind of remarkable, the kind of parallels that we have or at least uh, resonance. And uh, for things to be uh, to resonate, they don't have to be exact parallel, but their similarities also resonate with us. And we'll touch on that also as well uh, with the characters that we have in our story today of uh, Zelensky and Vladimir Putin. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, let me give me a, a a second here, and I'll see if I can make this happen. Okay. So this uh, uh, passage here from Deuteronomy, um, we're just going to like read it for the for, for the outset. This is what we're going to read from the second Sefer Torah, and um, this is how it goes: Zachor, which means to remember. Zachor et asher asad lacha Amalek. Remember what Amalek did to you. Baderach betzetachem mimitzrayim. On the way going out of Egypt. Asher karcha baderach. He happened upon you. V'yazanev v'cha. Kol hanechashalim acharecha. And he attacked all the, the weak or the stragglers in the back. Ba'ata, you, ba'ata ayeth diageh. You were tired and weary. 
And there was no fear of God. When you go to that place where you, uh, where God is going to grant you the land as uh, your inheritance, what are you supposed to do there? To erase the memory of Amalek, mitachat hashamayim, lo tishkach. Erase the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. Okay, so, you know, when we translate it into English, uh, you know, there's a little bit of uh, irony in there. How can you, uh, if this is something that we're supposed to continually do, why do we have to do it every year? And if we're supposed to blot out the memory, blot out the memory of Amalek, then uh, we shouldn't forget. Well, the whole idea, it sounds like, is to forget if we're blotting out the memory. Isn't that what blotting out the memory means, forgetting? Uh, but what we, the way that we take this, uh, the meaning of it, is that this, uh, the memory of what Amalek did, that is what we're, is it we're supposed to erase that or erase the symbol of Amalek itself? And then that becomes something we have to continually to continue to do. So that, that's the, uh, the idea is to, uh, to remember. So Amalek becomes this, this symbol of the enemy of Israel. And as it says uh, in the Talmud that in every generation there rises another form of Amalek and as we've seen throughout history, there are these kinds of uh, oppressors who, uh, who have it out for the, the Jewish people. Uh, this is from uh, the Torah, of course, and it's before the Jewish people are called Jewish people. They're called Yehudim. I mean, they're called Is Israelites here. It's not until actually the story of Esther that we have coming this week that we have the Israelites called Yehudim. And we're going to take a look at that in the middle also. So this one here uh, is the story of Amalek that we read on Purim day in the morning. V'yavo Amalek, v'yelechem im Israel. Here comes Amalek uh, to make war on Israel in a place called Rifidim. V'yom Mashel Yehoshua, and Moses says to Joshua, Choose men and go out to war against Amalek. Tomorrow I'm going to go up on the mountain and the staff of God will be in my hand. Yehoshua, Joshua does as he's, Moses told him and he fights against Amalek. Aaron Vachor, Alu Roshagiva, the two helpers, the brother Aaron and Chor, 
go up with Moses on the top of the mountain. Vahaya ka'ashir yarei Moshe yado v'gavar Yisrael. All the time that Moses held his hands up in the in the air, the Israelites prevailed. Every time he needed a rest, he let, let his hands down. Then the Amalekites seemed to get the upper uh, the upper hand, so to speak. And what did they think was a good idea? They took some kind of a stone and they put it under Moses. It must have been like uh, some something orthopedic to help his back or his posture or something. He, he sat on this thing. And the two guys, Hor and Aaron, held his hands up in the air. One on either side. And then his hands could stay up in the air. They were emunah. Ad bo Hashemish until the sun set. Ve'elachash Yehoshua et Amalek, and Joshua uh, uh, was able to prevail over Amalek. Ve'atamo v'fi'charov and put them to the sword. So they were victorious. Ve'yomer Adonai el Moshe, Ketov Zodzi Karamba Sefer. Write all this down in a book. Like there was a book of, uh, like a chronicle, like the book of wars it was called. Inscribe this as a document, as a reminder, and read it out loud to Yoshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So we have once again this mitzvah of blotting out the memory of Amalek. Under heaven, mitachad Hashemayim. Ve'yiven Moshe mizbeach. He makes an altar. Moshe does. Ve'yikram Shmo Adonai, and he calls by or through the name of God, the sea. Ve'yomer kiyad al kesya. This is a little enigmatic. This last phrase, uh, they translate it, "Hand upon the throne of God will be, and God will be at war with Amalek throughout all the ages." Milchama. From every generation. So we have set up over here this, uh, this concept that is kind of prophetic in a way uh, that there, are, there is going to be some kind of a mortal enemy that comes under the rubric of Amalek that throughout the generations that there will be this war between God and this evil force. And the Israelites really, of course, in, a, in the biblical concept, the, that the human beings, that is the Israelites, are really just holding the swords and the spears, but God is really doing the fighting. It says in Rosh Hashanah in the, in the Talmud about this passage, you know, what's the idea? Does Moses have some kind of like such magic in his, in his hands that all he has to do is raise his hands and the Israelites prevail? Ah, uh, no, the rabbis at the time said, no. Actually, what happens, they look to Moses, they see his hands going up into Shemayim, up to heaven. They look up, they realize, you know, they're conscious of God, God's power, and God is able to work through them and 
that's how the Israelites, when they make a connection to heaven and to Hashem, and that's really where the power, the power of uh, victory comes from. They're able to bring it down from Shemayim. Okay, so that's the, the basic uh, idea of uh, these texts being used for uh, this uh, Shabbat Zachor. What are we supposed to do? What's the, the mitzvah? To blot out the memory of Amalek from under Shemayim. Okay, so you would think we're not supposed to forget because uh, if we forget, we might get surprised again that Amalek, whoever this Amalek is, might come upon us again and do the same thing. So we shouldn't forget. And certainly um, we, I think Elie Wiesel maybe made, made the phrase famous of never forget. Uh, but that's the way that we're supposed to not only for our own existence be vigilant and not let the same kind of uh, general genocidal things happen to us in the future, uh, that we shouldn't let it happen in general also to anybody else. And that was the teaching of uh, Elie Wiesel. If we say never again, what do we learn from the Holocaust? We learn that there shouldn't be. So, you know, the, the fact is we haven't been so, so great, you know, at it since the, the Holocaust uh, of uh, preventing genocidal uh, acts to, to repeat themselves. And certainly now this is one of the things that we're challenged with is uh, seeing the same kind of uh, parallels with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and um, what kind of a, uh, it, it, it does this also get put into the category of never again. So uh, there is, um, I, I was listening to a discussion with uh, uh, Yehuda Kurser of the Hartman Institute and Paul Shapiro, who's the Director of International Affairs at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. And, and uh, Paul Shapiro pointed out something. Uh, you know, we, we want to make like distinctions between what happened actually in the Holocaust and what's happening now. We all always have... Uh, it's just human nature to think uh, it's not, this isn't really happening. This isn't, a, you know, it couldn't, it, it couldn't possibly happen. And if you've heard some of the interviews of the people in Ukraine, uh, they also expressing the same thing. Oh, we saw the troops on the border. We knew that something, you know, there was Crimea in, in 2014. We've been on the border with them, but nobody actually realized or could wrap their minds around this actually happening to this extent. And this is, uh, you know, when, when the verse says uh, that we're not so, supposed to forget, forget what? Forget to blot out this memory? Uh, well, it seems like we do because we can't believe that this kind of thing would happen again. So one of the things that, we're, that we, uh, it's incumbent upon us to do 
is try to think, okay, what are the signs? Does this look like that? And what kind and, and how to be uh, how to be prepared and stop something before it gets gets too far. So uh, Paul Shapiro said that when when Vladimir Putin says there is no Ukraine, that it's it was Russia and it is Russia, and there is no such thing as the Ukraine. That this is genocidal language, because it it uh, it, uh, it what he's saying is that this people does not exist, or that this people will not exist, or they should not exist. And uh, of course, we see that any any people who stand up like that and say we do exist and we're really to to lose our lives over it, of course they they exist. They have an identity. They exist. So one of the um, uh, one of one of the ideas here that that is brought in the half Torah we want to look at it here in a second is uh, what causes us as uh, as human beings to uh, to forget or to put our uh, guard down like uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, puts his hands down. What is it that, that allows us to put our guard down and let this evil uh, prevail or continue in the world? So let's look at this next source. This is, uh, all right, so this is the, um, just an excerpt from the Haftorah, which you see is taken from the first book of Samuel, of Shmuel, and the rabbis uh, saw uh, fit to choose this because uh, Agag, who is the uh, enemy in this story, is a descendant of Amalek. And then Haman is a descendant of Agag. And so we have this uh, a kind of a genealogy, which is supposed to show us that in every generation, there arises a new a new kind of an Amalek. So what uh, what does Saul, King Saul has a mission and his mission is to uh, to wage war against the Amalekites and to put them to Cherem and Cherem means uh, to annihilate them completely and not leave anything over. Do not take any of the the spoils of victory or anything like that. Uh, everything has, and the purpose is that whatever this, uh, that the, the whole tribe or the whole nation of this represents some kind of evil force that if you leave, you know, one little uh, uh, seed left, then it will just rise again and flourish. So, Shaul, he doesn't exactly live up to what his, that God told him to do. So we're going to start over here. So he goes and he meets up with King Saul. And he says to him, uh, Blessed are you of God. Hakimoti et 
davar Hashem for uh, for for you have fulfilled the uh, excuse me <clears throat> this is this is what Shaul says when Samuel the prophet comes and sees sees him. I have upheld the word of God. And then Shmuel answers him and he says, Hark, what is that bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And the lowing of cattle that I also hear. Vayomer Sha'ul, and Saul says back to him, May Amaleki Hevi'um Asher Hamal Ha'am Al Metav Hatson Bahamakar Laman Zavoach Laranai Lehecha Vieta Yoter Hecha Ramnu. So he has a reason for the, the, those cattle being there, the ones that were supposed to be put to harem also. He says, they were brought from the Amalekites for the troops. You know, they needed a little uh, reward for all their, uh, their fighting. So we spared some to feed the troops uh, and the choices of the sheep and the oxen were for sacrificing to the Lord. And then the rest of that, we put to harem, we prescribed. He says, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Speak, he replied. And Shmuel said, you may look small to yourself, but you are the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, saying, Go make war on the Malachites until you have exterminated them. They are sinful. Why did you disobey the Lord? and swooped on in the spoil in, in defiance of the Lord's will. Lama lo shema v'kol arnai v'ta'at et hashalal v'tas You did what was evil in the, in the eyes of God. And then he says, but I did obey the Lord. I performed the mission on which the Lord sent me. I captured the king Agag of Amalek and I proscribed Amalek. And the troops took from the spoil some of the sheep and oxen, the best of what has been prescribed to sacrifice for the Lord your God at Gilgal. So then he just uses the same, the same excuse that he needed to feed his troops and to make sacrifice. And then uh, this is what uh, Shmuel has to say back. Vayomesh Shmuel. Do you think that God really wants saf, uh, sacrifices of olot and zvachim, kim shmoa b'kol adonai, rather than listening and being obedient to the voice of God? 
Hi, I'm Maxine Kaufman, Executive Director of the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast, and I'm quickly interrupting this episode to tell you a bit about the organization that brings you the Parsha Pathways podcast. Welcome to the world of the Jewish Federation, where the Jewish values of compassion, charity, generosity, and responsibility inspire us to improve the quality of life for people in our community, in Israel, and around the world every day. It is time to meet the challenges of modern Jewish life, both at home and overseas, and to provide the financial resources needed to fund the many services, programs, and activities that are demanded of us to sustain and continue to grow a strong, vital, and vibrant Jewish life. Programs like Parsha Pathways are brought to you free of charge, but donations are always welcome. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org slash donate to learn more. Compliance than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, defiance like the iniquity of terafim. That's the type of idol worship. Because you rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you, the king. And then what we see in the, uh, in the rest of the narrative, this is like the beginning of the end of, uh, of, the king, of King Saul's reign. He then realizes what's happening and he grabs onto the cloak of the prophet uh, Samuel and Samuel uh, forces his way away. The clothing is rent, is torn, and Shaul is left there with a piece of garment, a remnant in his hand. And it's a symbol that the kingship has been taken away from him. So what's the, what's the point? He wasn't obedient. And this is like the, if there's a nafkamina, if there's a, a takeaway from this contextual story, it's to be obedient. However, this is a pretty difficult job to do, to actually put a whole nation to cherem, to uh, proscribe them, that means you annihilate every man, woman, child, and beast, and you take all of their possessions and you burn them up. And Shaul, Shaul Amalek, King Saul, just didn't have, the, have it in him to do that. And he had compassion on Agag, and actually uh, Agag uh, escaped. And that night, uh, Agag met up with uh, Mrs. Agag. And what happened from that uh, interaction led eventually to uh, Haman, uh, because they were able to carry on their, their lineage from that. And consequently, after the, this part of the uh, narrative, uh, Shmuel, as not only a prophet, but a warrior himself, 
uh, chases down Agag and uh, and finishes him off, but uh, not before it was too late for the the lineage to go on. So, from these uh, this story and the story previous of Amalek, we have uh, a narrative that is midor dor from generation to generation as we read in the in the passage from exodus that there is an amalek that rises in origin so when we get to uh, the story of purim we uh, have a tradition where every time this uh descendant of amalek is mentioned then we make some kind of noise in order to blot out the sound of Haman's name. So that's where this, uh, this minha comes from to make all that noise with rasha'im, noisemakers or whatever to have you to drown out the name and to, to blot that out from under heaven. Okay. so. Uh, all right, I'm going to, uh, are there any uh, comments before we go to the next uh, se section? Question. Yeah, um, questions. Uh -huh. um, there seems to be a repeated theme throughout uh, the Torah with the issue of obedience, disobedience, um, and times where God wants blind obedience and times where he would like us to kind of argue about it a little bit. You know, if we think something's not right, at least that's some of my experiences. I've heard stories of the, the binding of Isaac that takes that thing. Uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah um, arguing for you know, righteous people uh, is there a perspective? Is that you feel that that's a misperspective? Is that a, um, um, I I used to talking about like in the like there's sometimes when uh, the biblical char characters do uh, have some kind of a discussion with God and convince God, you know, don't be so wrathful, don't be so vengeful. Yes. And uh, so we have that with the Sodom Mora and Abraham argues, you know, for their on their behalf. And there are a few times when Moshe Rabbeinu also does that. Don't destroy, you know, the whole people. And uh, and he pleads for the, them as well. Um, so there are the, these cases in in this in this particular. But there are also other times when, you know, the 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 biblical characters don't argue. Right. And the one that you pointed out, I think, was with uh, Akeda, right. that God tells him, uh, Abraham, go sacrifice, you know, Isaac up there, and not a peep. So this, uh, and there, there is also, there are also other cases, there's a, um, of God telling the Israelites to put another tribe to Hiram, and they don't do it, or they take some of the booty, and then they're punished. 
And they said, oh, you know, oh, okay. And we realized that we were wrong. And then it's like, well, you better not go for it because God, you know, is not on your side anymore. And they did it anyway. Then they got really like wiped. Uh, so this, uh, this concept of, of harem, it's very disturbing one. You know, we don't like to think of, you know, that kind of brutality. Uh, but it was, um, it, it's one of those things that does appear in the Torah, especially, and in, in Tanakh, uh, as a form of war to, uh, like, to finish it off. So it doesn't, you don't have a perpetual battle with these people. And as some of the, th some of the things in the, in the Bible, you know, we, uh, we take some of these things in, in as moral lessons and others as uh, try to understand in context what was going on in that time uh, in, in a time where, uh, you know, I, I hate to say that, that, uh, that things were barbaric or more brutal <laughs> in the you know in biblical times than they are now because you know now they're much bigger weapons and seems like the brutality is even uh, even worse um but anyway so is there an usual an overriding theme that you that you see that talks about when we should argue and when we should obey I, I, I just just something I wrestle with now. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I don't really see. You know, you could. I think somebody can make an argument. Like, if you're arguing on on behalf of somebody else, like somebody else's benefit, your nation, your people, or uh, some other nation, then God's more willing to listen than if you just, you know. But I don't think that you. I think it's a a, a little bit more arbitrary in the in the bible and uh as far it, it as it seems that way to me it yeah. seems that way and i kind of wrestle with it now so i just yeah. Yeah. thank you all right uh richard did you can you take your mute off thank you <laughs> um good morning i said and uh i just you know, when I see the word obedience and this real devastating attack um, by God through Samuel, I think the only people that I know who have accepted the idea that obedience to God is absolute are Muslims. So I guess what I want to say is, do you think this is where they learned it from? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um... Well, I think they, I think they, uh, there are a lot of similarities, you know, between the Islam and, and Judaism. Uh, but we, Judaism also espouses this idea of, uh, of, of dut, of being in service to God. And uh, uh, um, that we're all like in Sivas Hashem, like we're in a, all in, a, in service to God. Uh, I think that they just take it a little bit further, that concept. And 
with uh but you know there's a great continuum just as we have a continuum of belief in judaism and there's a great continuum also in uh, in islam of uh, what that means to be obedient uh and i you know of course i, I think the one the people who are the most like radical in general you know just get the most attention and because they do you know radical things <laughs> uh, uh but i don't i'm not sure that you know that it, you could say that about islam in general that it's blind obedience well okay i don't argue with you about this but when i see i used to teach I used to teach in Chicago. I'm now in St. Petersburg, Florida. So anyway, so I used to teach in Chicago at the American Islamic College. And one of the most amazing experiences that I had was going into the men's room and seeing the college president and several students washing their feet in the sink in preparation for bowing down in prayer. So, you know, that wonderful, and, and not only did was that important to me, but also important was seeing in um, in our own tradition the only time that we bow down is for the high priest to bow down, and some more, um, I guess, from rabbis or cantors will do that at uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Uh, so <clears throat> I don't I don't really know what I'm saying except this absolute decree of uh, obedience is uh, carried much further in Islam than it is in Judaism. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, that's, I don't disagree with that at all. But um, I, you give a, you're giving me a good segue because I, I wanted to, tra to transition into the bowing. Uh, that, uh, but just uh, before we get there, yes, we also have washing that we do. And, you know, like one of the things the Jewish people, what we like to do since we're older is, is just, you know, cash in that card and, oh, we were washing first. <laughs> <laughs> and we just read in the, in the last parsha in Vayakael uh, Pakude about the, the, the basin for washing, and it was for washing your hands and feet. So nowadays, the Jews, we only wash our hands and instead of washing our feet we just take the, the shoes off so if you've ever been in a, in a shul where they duchen and you've seen that and you guys or participated in that so the duchan is actually a raised dais or just a raised platform and they call that's how it got its name duchening but it's when the kohanim bless the congregation and when they bless the the people first they at that time of the Amida during the repetition, they go out of the room, the Levites go out with them, and the Levites are supposed to wash their hands. So they take the cup, they put their hand in the washing basin, they wash their hands, they take their shoes off outside the door of the, of the room of the shul, and then they go in and then they bless the people with a priestly blessing. Uh, that Yivarechacha one. And so that's what I say and stay, you know, we're not up to that or, or something, or maybe we're beyond it. You know, the feet I've never seen in a shul, uh, a kind of a basin where you can like actually put your feet in there and wash your feet. I'm so, going to tell my, 
rabbi that she better start doing this. Yeah. Uh, Century Village in um, Deerfield. Century Village in Deerfield, the shul there, they actually do have a basin in the sanctuary to wash the feet of the Kohanim. I was of the, of the feet? Of the feet. Okay, that's great. Old school. Um, I think we're going to have in, in our, uh, you know, the building committee, we're going to put in a, a suggestion in the box, <laughs> getting that in our, you know, in our shul too. Um, also, and I, I like to, you know, just tease the, the you know, our Muslim uh, friends that <clears throat> they wash for a, just about as long as it takes us to daven. So we dive in a little bit more, more words, less washing, then more washing, less words. <laughs> but, uh, and they, and bowing down is, is a big part of prayer also in, uh, in their prayer. Like you said, we bow in Aleinu, v'anachnu korim u'mishtachavim. We, that's where we, korim, we bend the knee, and l'hishtachavet is to, to bow, so then we, bend and get up, bow at the waist like that. In at Rosh Hashanah, as you pointed out, that um, everybody actually is supposed to do that, to bow down to the, you know, all the way to the, to the floor. And that's what it really means to, when you, the Korim means you first have to bend your knees so you can get down to the floor and then you prostrate, pray, prostrate yourself. Uh, and, uh, uh, that this, um, actually, there's a Pirkei Avot that talks about the miracles that were done in the temple times. And one of them is that there were so many people packing the Ezra, the courtyard in the Beit HaMikdash, there, everyone was like shoulder to shoulder, packed in there. But somehow, when it came down, for, uh, came down to the time to bow down, to prostrate, there was room for everybody to lay down. So that's, that was one of the, the miracles of the Beta Mikdash. Okay, so are there any other times that we see in the biblical narratives of human beings bowing down? Can you yeah. think of me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things I've noticed, you know, since I seem to be um, commenting on this bowing down, as I read the Torah, I notice uh, when people are prostrating themselves. So I'd never noticed that before I became aware of this um, ritual behavior. And so it happens often uh, with, at major points when God is speaking to Abraham, when God is speaking to Moses, I can't tell you about the other patriarchs, but um, that's, yeah, that's a big feature of the Torah. Bowing. Okay. Do you do you guys know uh, of any other places in the in the Torah, for example, just the Torah, where where a human being bows down to another human being? Okay. So it does actually happen, and when uh, just one of the common ones is when Moses. I mean, when Abraham comes to these, you know. Uh, the uh, Shem and Hamor, and he has to bargain for that 
plot of land, the field, and the Maradamachpila, the cave of the ancestors, he prostrates and bows down to them. And uh, not only to the, to the leaders, but it says, um, as the people, all of them. And that's how he shows obeyance. It comes up that uh, like another half a dozen times, at least in Tanakh, where a human being bows down to a, another human being. It's a way of showing uh, some respect. And it must've been some kind of Near Eastern custom that uh, found its way in the, into, the, into the Bible. We think that the only one that you bow down to is the Kaddish Baruch Hu. But in the Torah and in other places, like in Chronicles, there are places where a human bows down to a, uh, another human being. So let's, let's go to a different share, okay? Just, so I'm not such an expert. So you're gonna give me a little Rachmanus here. And okay, so there is a, there's a source I'd like to use, uh, which is, I think it's, you know, it's a site of these, they're more like scholar, like critical essays on Tanakh. It's called the Torah.com. And they have entries by many different uh, uh, teachers there. So this one um, particularly is from Rachel Friedman. And as you see, Lamdenu uh, is, she's the dean over there. And she also uh, was the associate dean at Drisha in New York City. So this is about like bowing down. And what is this? It seems like this is a turning point in the story of, uh, of how Haman gets to the point of wanting to annihilate all of the Jews because one guy didn't bow down to him. So is it about being Jewish uh, or is it about being Mordechai? And that's kind of the, the, the angle here. So uh, this is the, this is the, con the context. Achar hadvarim ha'ele, after these things, gidal etaman. Ben Hamdata Agagi. So we get his lineage over here, Haman's lineage. And as it says, Agagi, he's from the tribal family of Agag, who we just read about in Shmuel. Okay. So after these things, Haman was promoted from, by Achashverush, and he elevated him to the top spot among all of the officials and officers in, in the court. And all of those, uh, um, the, those courtiers uh, in the gate of the king, Korim Umishtachavim, uh, they all bow down to Haman, everybody. Because that's what the king ordered. He didn't bend and he didn't bow. Okay, so we say 
we see that there's no uh, there's no reason given at this time for why why does he bow? Uh, is it uh, you know religious? Is it political? What is it? So this is what the others have to say to him. The other courtiers said to Mordechai, Mordechai, why are you transgressing the command of the king, i.e. to bow down to Haman? And they and they told him every day. They had the same discussion every day because Haman would come along. He would, everyone's bowing down. He doesn't bow down. And they keep at him. Why are you not? He didn't listen to them. So they wanted... Uh, they, uh, when they spoke to David, so they told Haman what he was doing in order to see like if he would really be able to stand up to what he was doing after Haman heard and knew about this for he told them that he was a Jew. And now we don't really know what this has to do with it. Why? Why being a Jew has anything to do with, with him bowing down or not? So, uh, and that's what she says. We, we don't really know why. Okay, so the uh, rabbis, of course, are going to give us um, a reason. And then here's an, this is a reference to another article. Why doesn't Mordechai bow down? Because there's a midrash that he felt it was a form of avodazar, of idolatry. Why? Because there was some kind of idol either this is according to the midrash there was uh, an, an idol on his turban some kind of an idol on that and or on his clothing somehow and that you're not supposed to bow down to idols okay you know we were talking about the alenu that uh, actually there are people you know some synagogues have uh, designs in the carpeting and they take with them a piece of blank paper. So on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, when they bow down, they shouldn't be bowing down to any kind of an, an, an image. They're just looking at a blank piece of paper. Now, that's going, you know, the whole way, going the whole way. We shouldn't be bowing down to any idols, but that's the, uh, like, the rabbinic, uh, the rabbinic approach. Um, uh, it's uh, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, not totally satisfying, not totally satisfying. So here we have a, another, uh, another angle uh, that it could have been a statement of refusing to uh, accept the authority of Haman. And why is that? Well, here, here she points out. Immediately preceding the rise of Haman, we're told that Mordechai saves the king from that assassination plot. Remember that? And instead of rewarding Mordechai at that moment, instead, we have a promotion of Haman. So 
Mordechai, because he's in defiance of this, you know, bowing down, it's going to bring this whole, like, there's a, a vying for power between these two characters. Who's going to be on the, who's going to be on the top? Mordechai or Haman? So uh, he feels, and then it comes to, this is the, it's the question of power. So Mordechai is, becomes like a threat to the power that was given to Haman. And he feels like, oh, he's, um, uh, and, and Mordechai feels that Haman was given a little bit too much, too much power placing him above everyone else in the, in the court, and that this is uh, dangerous to the king. So the, here, here you have a character who already thwarted an assassination on the king, and it would follow that he is the same kind of protector of the king, and he sees in Haman this tendency for power, and that perhaps what his uh, goal is, is to take over the king, king take over the, the seat of the king itself. So what does uh, Haman do? He's got to figure out what he's going to, uh, to do about this, uh, this threat of Mordechai. Vayar Haman ki ein Mordechai Haman get filled with anger. You would think, that he would just go to the king and say, hey, this Mordechai guy, he's, uh, he's disobeying your order to bow down to me. But he doesn't say that. Uh, uh, he decided he doesn't want to lay hands only on Mordechai himself. He Mordechai this is Am Mordechai, the nation, not only Mordechai, but he's going to, why does he have to go over, over uh, and want to wipe out all the Jews? Why just Mordechai? Well, what is he going to do to go to the king and say this Mordechai, you know, he is, uh, he's not bowing down to me. Then Mordechai is going to come up and have to, uh, tell the, the king, why not? And that, that Haman doesn't want to get exposed of his, what his real plan is, is to usurp the throne of the king. And so instead, he deflects and says, okay, we're just gonna, there's this nation, they don't, they go play by their own rules, they're a threat to you and your kingship, and everyone, and you better get rid of them because it's going to be an existential threat to your whole kingdom. So that somehow is uh, the king. The king buys this instead, and then he's able to avert his uh, the, any suggestion that uh, he of, of his his real goals to usurp the throne. Okay, um, <clears throat> so this is what uh, this kind of language also is. Uh, when she writes in here the final solution, those are kind of uh, 
like Holocaust recollections that we have every time we we see these kinds of things, to completely annihilate all of the Jews. Okay, why is why is he doing this? He's doing it for his own for his own power, and that sometimes a uh, um, an individual on their road uh, to this ends of gaining power. Every time they gain a little bit of power, they they become sort of hardened to the or insensitive to others. And eventually what comes after each, each uh, turn in the road or each step, that this person uh, becomes more uh, hard-hearted and cruel and, and more determined to ascend to their goal of power and to keep their power. And they might become more brutal as things go along. So we have a, a little bit of a parallel, I, I should say. Um, with, uh, I'm gonna come back to here for a second. Okay. So um, it, it occurred to me- five, five more minutes. Oh, five minutes? Five minutes. Well, it's really, we're, we're going over, but we started- oh, we're at 12 o'clock. We're at 12 o'clock. All right. So um, uh, I, I think that you could see also the, um, you know, the parallel with uh, what, what's happening, you know, we ask ourselves, why is, uh, why is Vladimir Putin going into Ukraine for this? I mean, the, everything's getting demolished. And why does he want to do this? So, uh, you know, what's going to be left? He's Amalek. <laughs> Amalek, yeah. So, if we, you know, look for a second also at this character of, of uh, Pharaoh, who we had, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, and the famous part about, you know, during the plagues, what happens to Pharaoh's heart? Gets hardened. And Kavere uh, le paro that that is, and each step of the way, it gets hardened and more hardened and more hardened, and. You know, when Maimonides, you know, he com comments on this, this, uh, this passage that the first, at first he's hardening his own heart. And then the, at the end, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh as if to say that a person is given so many chances to do tshuva and turn away from their evil ways. But once they have, keep repeating that behavior, it's like God can't even help, help them anymore. And that this is uh, one of the dangers of, of this lust for power, that people forget that there are other human beings in the world. And it's like a kind of a, like a, like kind of a sickness that uh, the lust for power becomes so great that you're willing to uh, sacrifice lives of innocent people in order to get what you're and this is what the, the story of, of Haman is about as well, trying to get to his, uh, his end goal. And um, so when we say al uh, tishchak, we're not supposed to forget. Uh, and what are we supposed to erase from mitachat hashemayim? We're supposed to uh, erase this kind of mentality that leads to uh, 
uh, people becoming so power hungry that they'll annihilate uh, whole populations for it. All right. Well, thank you everybody for your uh, for joining in today. Thank you. Very, very interesting and educational. Thank you, Rabbi David. You're welcome. Shabbat But I do want to mention one thing on uh, Monday at 12 noon, a federation in collaboration with the board of the Pinellas County Board of Rabbis and several other uh, spiritual leaders in the community uh, are putting on a prayer vigil for uh, Ukraine. Um, Kara just put the uh, link up on the chat. It's a virtual rally. So if you can virtual vigil, it's hard to say. Um, so please, um, if you are able to attend on Monday at noon, please do so. Um, everyone have a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Amen. See you next week. Chag Sameach Purim. Shabbat Shalom. Chag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Parsha Pathways. We hope that this episode filled your heart, mind, and soul with Jewish wisdom. Don't forget to stop by jewishgulfcoast.org to explore everything that the Federation has to offer. And we look forward to bringing you next week's Parsha. Shabbat Shalom.